0: Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is the last laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and I have to admit something about this week's guest. Joe Pera is a comedian that I have wanted to have on this show for quite a while, but I was always a bit wary about getting to know him because I didn't know what I was going to get. Would he be the same soft-spoken, sleep-inducing Joe Pera who I have spent many relaxing hours watching on his Adult Swim show, Joe Pera Talks With You?, or would I catch glimpses of him revealing some real Joe Pera who is somehow different from the character he may or may not have been playing on TV and the stand-up stage for the better part of a decade? You will have to listen to our interview and make up your own mind, but I can say with certainty that Joe is one of the most thoughtful and sincere comedians we've ever had on this podcast. And I think that especially if you were a fan of his work, including a new stand-up special called Slow and Steady that is unlike anything else out there, you are really going to enjoy listening to him talk about how he developed into such a unique voice in the comedy world. Just please make sure you are not operating any heavy machinery. Before we get into our talk, here's a clip from Joe Perra Talks With You, in which Joe shares a strategy for grocery shopping that I still can't help but think about every time I go to the supermarket.
1: Hello. My name is Joe Pera. Every Tuesday, I come to my grocery store to reprise my role as shopper. It's a fun role, but also quite challenging. According to the Food Marketing Institute, from 1975 to 2008, the number of products in the average supermarket swelled from 9,000 to over 46,000. I don't know about you, but... That's more than I need. Yes, yes, yes. I'm not doing my impression of Jim Carrey in the 2008 film, Yes Man. In my mind, I just ask myself three simple questions about this product. Should I eat this? Will I eat this? Can I afford this food? If I say yes to all three, I'll get it. In a modern supermarket, where I can have anything, I must draw the line myself. Like the casino, it promises good times, but so without restraint, I will get ruined.
0: Well, I'm I'm so happy that you're here, Joe. Um, and I, I want to start by saying, telling you something that I, I'm hoping you'll take as a compliment, which is that the first time I watched your new stand-up special, Slow and Steady, I did fall asleep about 45 minutes, uh, into it.
1: Okay. Oh, thank you. Well, that's good. Cause I think the sleep section had started at that point.
0: Yes, that's, it was, it was well into the sleep section, um, where for anyone who hasn't seen it yet, you are, uh, you're, you have music going and you're like, well, let you describe it, but you're sort of, um, you're, you're encouraging sleep at that point in the special.
1: Yeah. I've been doing, uh, different versions of that since I think 2015, and i did it live on stage a full show where i talked to the audience to sleep and then that grew into an adult swim animation and then the an episode in each of the seasons of our adult swim show and then now i'm doing it as a podcast but thought it'd be fun to try to do with Ryan as a way to close out the stand-up special in a way that um i don't know i hadn't Seen before, and the, some of the bits before that were a little bit uh, pretty jokey and gets a little rambunctious for bits. So I wanted to mellow it out and uh, bring it down to a comfortable place to close out the show that evening. Close your eyes and imagine it's one of those nights in August in which it's too hot to even have an appetite for dinner. And so After sweating all day, you come home and are now sweating in bed. Your air conditioner is making a lot of noise, but not a lot of cool air. Having a tough time getting the temperature to the 60 to 67 degree range doctors say is ideal for sleep. And imagine your partner next to you, Yubi, is having a difficult time too. Every time you're about to doze off, UB changes positions, kicking you in the face. <laughs> it wasn't easy, but you've gotten accustomed to their preferences, of sleeping head to toe. <laughs> it's a cultural thing for UB, who's more or less a benevolent version of the Babadook. <laughs>
0: Have you noticed people actually falling asleep in the theater when you do that section or do people usually stay pretty pretty alert
1: I've been told the podcast and the video specials that we've done with sleep are actually per- effective but it's it's a little it's a little less common for people to fall asleep in the theater I mean I feel like that one is written for a live audience with a lot more. Hard punch lines and some crowd work so it's a it's a meant for a live experience but people have fallen asleep during shows sometimes when i'm not doing sleep material but uh, yeah it was i think most of the audience was still awake but i suppose the hope is they go home and fall asleep a little bit more comfortably once they get there
0: are you someone who falls asleep uh, easily? Is it you've helped so many other people at this point sleep? Do you do you feel like you're a, a, a good sleeper, or do you have trouble ever? Is there anything you do to help yourself go to sleep? I go
1: through periods where I'll wake up at three a.m. in the middle of the night, but in terms of falling asleep, I usually don't have too much trouble. And I've I, part of it. I'm pretty prone to falling asleep. It at shows in public in class. Uh, I, uh, yeah, yeah. It's just I think it runs in my family. We're just uh, uh, we have trouble staying awake certain times.
0: Well, let's talk about your special slow and steady, um, which I I just really enjoyed, and I had never, you know, I had never seen you. I'd seen so much of you, your show on Adult Swim and all that, but I had never seen you do stand up really before this. And I know it was sort of a long road to get to this first big hour long special on YouTube. So what was that process like for you of of really putting together um, an hour, even if it's not an entirely traditional uh, stand-up comedy hour?
1: Uh, I mean, mean, most of it is pretty standard jokes. Uh, It's a collection of stuff that I've been working on. I've been doing stand-up for uh, well over a decade, uh, since I was 18 years old. And yeah, and I've done like late night sets and stuff. They took some one of the, my first one down because it usually I sing a copyrighted song, but uh, yeah.
0: Which one was that on on uh, Conan or somewhere else?
1: Seth Meyers from I think twenty fourteen or fifteen. I sang a portion of Jesse's Girl, and I guess Rick Springfield got <laughs> pissed about it. You didn't like that. Yeah, but like a lot of the stand up that. I've developed for a period of time while making my adult swim show would go into the show. Like the, I had a bit about the four stages of watching fireworks that was directly from the stage and turned into a large portion of an episode. And so for a while it was kind of doing standup and, uh, that would turn into show material pretty directly. So it was hard to amass a full hour. Um, but I've had jokes and segments from that didn't make the show, and that I've been growing and never had a place for for, you know, since I started. So it, it's it's a, it's been the development process has been both long and short for this special. It's kind of uh, was truly pieced together on the road in the year and a half after my show was canceled, and I went on tour, and I was able to kind of keep. Adding and tweaking, and then growing some new bits like the uh, sleep ending that you saw there. But it's some of the jokes uh, probably are older than I want to admit, just because I never had the chance to record them or perform them until then.
0: Yeah, is there an example of something from the new special that is that really is something that you wrote pretty early on in your uh, comedy career? I would say that.
1: I mean, the opening Cube's joke was one that I uh, performed and then retired even because I just felt, you know, I didn't want to keep doing the joke for too long. But then as I was putting the hour together, I realized it's a really beautiful joke, in my opinion, that works in a funny way. And I wanted to bring it back. Uh, or I, I thought to bring it back and then its role in the entire special kind of grew and I'm glad I did. It just would have been a shame to never record it because it's so f- it's such a funny joke to me. I suppose I should probably do some jokes. <laughs> a few Sundays ago I got home late to find that my roommates Bill and Thomas had gone to bed early, taking care to be rested for the upcoming week. Opening my freezer door to get an ice for an ice water, I saw that all four trays were empty. So what did I do? I filled them up. <laughs> because come Monday morning, there's going to be cubes for my boys.
0: How you know you you interact with your audience a lot during the show, um, and I feel like you must have very passionate, dedicated fans um, of your work. How would you describe the people who really um, who really connect with your comedy? Do you feel like there's a um, any anything that you notice that sort of links people together, or um, you know something that you feel like defines your audience? I
1: would say maybe it's hard to generalize, but. Uh, I think they're kind of thoughtful, sensitive people, but I like to think that, you know, anybody could come to the show and have a good time. I wish, I do think, I like, I think that the special taping was nice. It had a pretty wide range of ages, which was always funny to me when it functions like that. But I think it's a little bit on the younger side because of my show being on Adult Swim, I always think like, what if it had aired at, on PBS or something like that? I could,
0: yeah, which it could have, it, you know, you, you could totally imagine that. Um, and I think it would have felt just as home, just as at home on PBS as adult swim in some ways.
1: Yeah. So I think it's, it's changing now that I'm doing up and the work is that show is now on HBO max. And I feel like a wider range of, People are finding it than just uh, 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 the, the adult swim diehard fans who are willing to stay up till past midnight to watch it.
0: Yeah, it's great that at least for now you can everyone can see it on Max. Um, you know who knows how long they'll keep everything around there, but um, but it's uh, it's nice that it's there for for everybody to watch. Yeah, as you said, any any time of day that they might want to. Yeah.
1: So it that, that makes a difference, and I feel like it's changed even since i've been going on tour and been able to tour after the show it's changed a little bit
0: um so you know you're obviously very uh, a pretty low-key guy um you know i've been a- accused of being the same i think uh <laughs> comedy seems like sometimes like a, an unlikely profession for for someone with with your demeanor how did you start doing it did you did you feel like it was, you just knew that comedy was what you wanted to do, or um, did you feel at home in, in comedy when you started?
1: Um, it took some um, getting used to. Uh, it's hard at first to kind of like present my j- jokes and st- pacing it, you know, and perform how I wanted to perform it and take my time. and, uh, But Honestly, I, I never had. A, I mean, it's hard at it, open mics to get anybody's attention for a while. But I think even going into clubs or I performed on the subways uh, platform to see what would happen and hope make a few bucks there. Yeah, but it's like I think comedians, no matter who they are, what their own taste is when there's somebody's doing something that's personal to them and. Um, you know, have a, a different approach. It's it's usually kind of respected that I was taking it at my own speed. And yeah, most people were pretty nice.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I imagine that it was more difficult in some ways when you were at the beginning because you're performing for people who don't know who you are. And now you're probably mostly, as you said, performing for a lot of people who do know who you are. Um, what was, what, how did you kind of, did you attempt to ingratiate yourselves to those sort of unknown audiences in those early days at open mics or on the subway? Or how would you, how would you try to connect with, with people or sort of, you know, tell them who you are and, and what to expect?
1: I always, I was taken at my own pace and I think I understood, like, I always wanted to make the audience laugh and not, you know, alienate anybody. Buddy, but, like, I was going to do it how I felt like I wanted to do the jokes and the, and the stuff I wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk about gardening at open mic. And, you know, sometimes you're performing to try and make the few people who like it laugh a lot rather than everybody laugh a little bit. So that was always the thing. When you can get one person really going, that's <laughs> like, that's, that's enough, and you know that you're doing, if you're making one person laugh really hard, then you know you're on to something interesting.
0: Yeah, I, I love that. That's better to make one person laugh really hard than make everyone sort of laugh a little bit.
1: Yeah, so that's 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 fun. But like, uh, in terms of, yeah, it's different now. I always loved the challenge of having to win over an audience to what I was doing. It's great now. Like it it, clear, it changed a lot after the I went on tour after the third season of the show and it had been on HBO Max I think a lot of people found it during pandemic because it was a little bit sore paced and a nice thing to watch.
0: Yeah. Calming for people who with a lot of anxiety. Sure
1: so like I feel like that uh, yeah we had to yeah more people were coming out than ever that knew who I was going into shows that changed the whole dynamic of it
0: are there are there moments that you could think of from earlier in your career shows where you really just felt like you the audience wasn't getting you like you weren't even getting that that one person who who understood what you were doing and and how did that feel
1: sure i definitely had some pretty bad shows uh like everybody else but i yeah, there was one casino gig that was really bad that I didn't, I didn't realize, it was my, it might have been my first paid gig. It was offered $100 to perform on the casino floor in Western New York. And like, I didn't, I went in there trying to approach it kind of, I don't know, artistically, or at least trying to do the jokes that I wanted to do. I didn't realize at the time that, you know, it's a survival gig. I was too Young in comedy to understand that, so it was like maybe two or three people actually watching the show while everybody gambled and the machines went off. <laughs> I think that they're the the casinos. Well, I think they're obliged to have so much entertainment that's not gambling by law. So we were we were just there to fill that gap, and I would I took it hard because it was it was. Uh, I feel like there's ways to have fun and most performing situations but that one felt a little unwinnable without just doing crowd work or it was a yeah it was a survival fill in time gig get the 100 bucks get out of there but i took it uh yeah i took it hard at the time i don't yeah but i don't i don't think it was it was it's stung, but it wasn't scarring
0: yeah you you kept going
1: yeah, not to the point I was going to change my approach or anything.
0: Were there comedians that you really looked up to or even tried to emulate early on, um, people who you sort of saw a kindred uh, spirit with? Sure. I always, I
1: mean, I love, I always I'd get Zach Galifianakis' Kame Central oh, Presents yeah. as being pretty important with the, the acapella cappella choir of his ex-girlfriends at the end or <laughs> any dance. It's just kind of, there are certain mo- moments of people you see when you realize that stand-up is broader than just saying jokes into a microphone one after another. And that really, as long as you're being funny up there, you could do almost anything. And that's the, the people I looked up to a lot and, you know, who kind of... Sh- stretch it as far as you can or i don't know create a little I don't know, create a little theater world for an audience to live in for a little bit and have more than to offer them than just straightforward punchlines punchlines are great but it's i don't know it's there's so much more you can do with it and that's what keeps me excited about it still
0: Coming up, Joe responds to the fans who think he might be playing a character on stage. And later, how exactly did he get the rights to play The Who's Baba O'Reilly so many times on Joe Para Talks With You? absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness because one purchased equals one donated wow did we just write an ad yes
1: Bombus. big comfort for everyone go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase
0: if you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts By subscribing to the Last Lap, you can listen to our previous episodes with stand-up comedians like Maria Bamford, Patton Oswalt, Aparna Nancherla, and more, along with everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Wednesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple and Spotify to let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Joe Para. I'm sure you're you're sort of aware that there are. People out there, uh, whether it's on Reddit or you know other platforms, TikTok, who really seem to believe that you're playing a character um, and that you know this is not really who you are. There's apparently I'm not on TikTok myself, but I'm told there are um, people who try to catch you breaking character. Uh, what do you what do you say to those people, or how do you how do you think about that phenomenon that that people sort of ascribe to you that um, who really believe that this this is, could not be who you really are?
1: I don't know. People on the internet think a lot of things, but <laughs> uh, but I I don't know. I guess it's like I can't have a regular conversation with everybody, so they can see with I'm like off stage, So I don't know what to tell them. Um. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I wonder if people just sort of can't believe that that anyone could be this gentle, this sincere. Um, all the time and that it's almost like it, it, there's something about you know who you are that that people don't that they just they don't want to believe that it could be real
1: no i just don't know what to do about it and so i try not to worry about it
0: yeah you can't change anyone's mind who's uh, doesn't want to be changed i guess no no. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if any of it also has to do with Joe Para Talks With You, your series, which does kind of blend reality and comedy in some ways. Like it it's clearly not a documentary, but it feels like it could be one. And as you said, like it feels like it could be something on PBS um that, you know, would show more like documentary type stuff. Um I, I do wonder if you've encountered people who think it's a documentary who who don't sort of realize that it's a, a comedy show or um, that these are, you know, it's populated by comedic actors like Connor O'Malley and Joe Firestone, Carmen Christopher. Um, is that something that you've encountered people who who really seem to to think that it's real?
1: Yes, they think I. There are people who. I mean, that's why you can't get concerned about the internet. There are people who also <laughs> email or uh, th- think I am a choir teacher for real in Upper Michigan and not just a TV show. But I. I mean, I take that as high compliment in a way that it feels believable to them, and that the details are feel realistic. Uh, but yeah, um, yeah, no, that's like it's a it's a pretty nice compliment, and I I don't know, I feel like <laughs> it does make me a little concerned that uh, I don't know people are they have that much difficulty telling the difference between a TV show and real life, like what else (laughs) they might believe. But
0: yeah, exactly. Um, what was the initial idea behind Joe Parra talks with you? How did you, you know, pitch it? Uh, were you, did you go out to other places besides adult swim or how did that whole process uh, happen? It started,
1: they had a a. 4am slot where they would usually have fake infomercials. There are a lot of uh, really funny ones, and it was like a airing pilot, and I had been doing the talks you to sleep, and I presented a few ideas, but that was one that they, I mean, it, it made sense for at them and <laughs> for me. That was perfect, and yeah, it was very neat. You got a little mini budget to make the fifteen minute piece. We made. It the best we possibly could, and I guess people liked it enough that they offered us to do a Christmas special, which we tried to make live action, and uh, we did. And kind of like we were able to slowly develop the rest of the world around me and my profession, my friends through, and the other characters in it through those airing shows, which was really a like a dream to not have to go through a development process on paper waiting on approvals back and forth i think i think the christmas special might have just happened because they had like money to get off their books before (laughs) they had to spend before the end of the year but really they i uh, just got a call and they said like okay you want to make a 22-minute Christmas special could be pretty much anything you want to do. And then they let us have free reign. And the, But it had to be made in three months from writing to shooting and editing. But that's, that's great. It's so much better than having to wait around for things to happen. Finding a tree in Michigan is not hard. In fact, I would say that it is easy. There are almost 14 billion of them between the shores of Lake Michigan and Lake Superior to the west, and Lakes Huron and Erie to the east. But finding the perfect Christmas tree is not easy. In fact, I would say that it is hard. Hello, my name is Joe Perra, and I would say that finding the perfect Christmas tree is as hard as kicking a field goal into the wind. And you were kicking for Michigan against Michigan State in the annual game. And Cheryl, the cheerleader you were dating, is on the sidelines wearing a turtleneck under her uniform. Found the tree yet, Joe? Not yet, bro. We just, yeah, based on that, we were able to get the first season. And we built out the world further. But it was... I wish it had happened like that more places where people were able to show what they wanted to make. Because I don't think it, it cost a bit, but I don't think it cost a ton yeah. to. Because comedically, you can't, it's hard to convey a tone that is new or different if you're not able to make it. Yeah, I don't know if it would have been made in another place because of that.
0: You know you got to do so much over the course of those three seasons is there an episode uh, or a moment or something that really stands out to you as exemplifying you know exactly what you were trying to achieve with the show the tone the look the the vibe all of it
1: i mean i like we tried to make every season a little bit different and not try and repeat especially because like i don't that the breakfast episode a lot was made by mistake and the pumpkin episode in the first season, uh, I really liked, same with the Bob O'Reilly, but it, we didn't yeah. entirely know what we <laughs> were doing. We just had an idea and <laughs> did our best to follow through on it, and I think the energy and that we had...
0: Yeah, that one obviously connected in a big way. Yeah,
1: so I don't know if we would have been able to make something like that again, even if we tried, just because we knew more than we did when we approached that idea and like not knowing the limitations of television and a budget i think helped us take risks in the way that we um i wouldn't say it may it made us take different risks than we did in later seasons i got more interested in trying to connect full uh more storylines and also as this show went on I became more interested in fleshing out other characters and having them have bigger storylines like I guess yeah we introduced uh a bunch of friends for Sarah the character mm-hmm. Joe Firestone's character Sarah yeah, they had that
0: she's so amazing on the show stop don't eat that it's an onion
1: you're an onion oh why do you have an onion in the fruit bowl? It's a long story. I was I'm at the... No, not tonight, I've heard enough tonight. Why does everyone have to share so much? As soon as this water boils, I'm gonna share these pierogies with you. Thank you, thank you. Is that what I meant, I... It was like,
0: everyone was like, it was like a tell-all, you know? Like, too open, you know?
1: No, but I want to.
0: Is there, a, I don't know how involved you were in it, but is there a story behind actually getting the rights to the Who's Baba O'Reilly to use in the show? Because that was kind of surprising because, you know, I don't think you'd had any other music uh, music cues like that.
1: No, we, there was a whole process. We did, again, with the not knowing how things were helping us. We
0: yeah wrote it first and then realized it might be a problem.
1: Yeah, they said that they... They asked us at the beginning, like, are there any other songs that work as well? (laughs) And we said, uh, I don't, we came up with a few alternatives, but it wouldn't have, I don't think it would have worked.
0: Yeah. You didn't try for Jesse's Girl?
1: No, not the same energy. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, so we we made, somehow they had to go all the way up to like uh, Townsend's like, assistant or someone close to them had the okay to okay the use which was a miracle but the producer we didn't realize every time you use a song in a tv show you have to pay for each use like even if we chopped up one the song one time and every time it starts and stops counts as an entirely new use so i think they paid for like seven or eight which is a lot <laughs> yeah that was but probably then, a, that
0: was probably your most expensive episode.
1: Yes. So we ended up using it twelve to fifteen times in the edit <laughs> that we turned in and then the producer kinda panicked and the person at Adult Swim panicked. But luckily uh Mike Lazo, who is head at Adult Swim, got to see the rough cut of it before uh it we had to re edit it and he said, Well, f- We'll, we'll pay for the extra uses because it's it works so well so that was uh that was a relief but like now once we learned that we were smarter i don't know we would have edited it differently and more cautiously and within the boundaries of the <laughs> within the boundaries of the budget like uh experienced smart people do but because we didn't know better <laughs> we 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 just went for it, and
0: and maybe it makes it better. I,
1: I think so. Yeah, it was a large part of. I think the first season turning out so well was that just kind of excitement, and we always had the feeling that we may not get another season, so we put everything we had into the first, and same with the second. You know, who knows if it's so tricky, and I feel even more fortunate now watching other people go through the development process how fortunate we were to even get something on air let alone three seasons so we just went all out every single opportunity we got and tried to fit everything we had into the season and yeah you just never know
0: you you, know, you mentioned that it got the show got canceled you know shortly before you you went on tour uh was that a you know a surprising decision were you disappointed um you know how did you how did you feel when you found out that you wouldn't get to make any more of it i kind of i think i had done like
1: one bit of tour before uh just a, uh uh before it was canceled just like a small leg and maybe just to, to kind of like i didn't know yeah to fill time and i don't know i I thought after three seasons we would be okay, especially since so many new people seem to find it on HBO Max, but there's a a big corporate uh, buyout. And fortunately, you know, a lot of the people we were working with uh, were fired there too, which really uh, was a bummer because there were a lot of good people we got to work with, but I think the higher ups at the there was, was like there two buyouts since we started the show, so it was just a lot of layers and they canceled a lot of stuff. It felt less personal after.
0: Yeah, uh, I guess
1: that's nice at least. Yeah, so it was it was a bummer. I think everybody was a little tired, and at the end of the third season, which we filmed during COVID, so it was it was nice in a way to just be able to. You know, once it was canceled, then we just added more tour dates. I was able to travel around in a way that I wasn't able to and perform for live audiences. And especially, yeah, I don't... We went, did a small tour after the first season, but the show had grown, and it was like really neat to be see how many people had found and appreciated the show. So it was... It was something I wouldn't have had the opportunity to do if we had a fourth season right away.
0: Yeah, it's 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 okay. Uh, yeah,
1: I don't believe things play out a certain way because there's fate or anything like somebody guiding. But I do stuff happens and you roll with it and then you figure out <laughs> what to do next. So,
0: um, in terms of what you what you're doing next, uh, you have your 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 Perez tour, which is uh, you know I think partly inspired by Taylor Swift, right?
1: Yes, it was just too good of an opportunity to pass up naming it that. So I I wanted to roll with it. I, might, I was thinking that maybe I'll, like her, I'll at least do one costume change during the show.
0: Oh, that would be good. Yeah.
1: Yeah, change from a blue bun down to a green bun down or something.
0: <laughs> I think the fans will go nuts for that. Oh, yes. Yeah, I mean, in terms of acting, you've done some some more acting roles in recent years. I've noticed, uh, you were on a search party, you're a voice in Pixar's elemental, right? Um, is that something that you have that you want to pursue in a bigger way acting? A little bit. I mean,
1: I, I, don't, I like writing and making my own stuff, but if Pixar asked me if I want to play a talking mound of dirt,
0: I'll say, okay. <laughs> <laughs> were you offended all by that? Or did you feel like it was, uh, a good role for you
1: no it was great it was like that's exactly who i should be playing
0: (laughs) hey fern how you doing
1: living the dream
0: (laughs) you know those citations i just gave you from firetown
1: i was about to send them to mrs cumulus then get sprayed for fungus rot
0: wait can you imagine playing a getting cast as a you know someone drastically different from from who you are or or taking some sort of wild swing as an actor i think it'd
1: be fun uh i don't know it all depends in the right project it would be fun to do anything um i don't know yeah i also i thought like for the search party i have a cameo as a doctor and i thought i was really trying to act Differently than myself, but it's, I watched it and it's like, it's, just, it's the it's same old me. So I don't.
0: Uh, so now it's time for our segment called The First Laugh that ends the show. So I'm going to ask you a series of questions, starting with the first piece of comedy that you remember making you laugh really hard as a kid growing up.
1: There's a, a Canadian children's book author named Robert Munch. I don't know. He wrote uh, he has some funny books and he also recorded a he had uh, he recorded some of his stories on a cassette tape. I remember listening to them and having a good hearty laugh as a five year old
0: What do you remember about the first time you actually got up in front of an audience uh, to perform jokes whether it was at an open mic or or somewhere how did how did it go uh, you know what are your memories of it?
1: The very first time I tried to do jokes for an audience. Alan Schweibel, who is a writer for SNL, taught a summer course at University of Buffalo. And there was just people who of all ages, I think it was, I was the youngest, but there were people as old as 50, 60, who just wanted to learn how to write jokes. And I, my, he gave me an assignment to do a stand-up set at the end of the week, and I couldn't remember I got up there and I couldn't remember anything and, uh, yeah, it went very badly, but it made me realize, you know, it's th- learned my first lesson that like, you gotta really have your stuff memorized before you go up there.
0: Yeah. I've talked to so many comedians who say that their first time went really well. And then, you know, the next 20 times went terribly, but, um, <laughs> but it sounds like, uh, you, you had to, you had to go up a few more times before you had that experience of it going well. I tried to
1: make him laugh. Yeah, I think I got a couple of chuckles out of him, even though it went awful. It might have been just him being nice. Being nice,
0: yeah. He seems like a nice guy.
1: Yeah, he was, and um, so I did that. And then the first time I did it was at a an open mic at, at college, and that went well. So I think maybe the lessons about really having the jokes memorized double, uh, twice as much as I thought. I need paid off because i got through that set and it seemed to go well
0: do you remember the first joke that you wrote that really worked on stage that you really felt like you you connected with people and you you got a good laugh
1: one of the early ones that i remember doing regularly was about i true I, I went to a doc uh, a doctor about me losing my hair and I, he said i could get a thousand dollar treatment to help and I something about the punchline being like I spent a thousand dollars on a hat and it was (laughs) it was it wasn't bad but it had proper joke structure and you know a turn and I remember using that a bit when I started.
0: Finally is there a story or memory from your career that makes you laugh now but really was not funny when it happened?
1: I mean there's a lot Sorry, it's right before lunch. I need this. Uh, my mind isn't working that great. Mm. There was a lot of time. When me, Dan Licata, and our buddy Charles Gould were putting on shows at a uh, creek in the cave where we were first starting, we did a bunch of shows that probably went way too long. They were like two and a half, three hours on a Tuesday night. And... Uh, Rebecca and the venue, who, uh, the owner, were very nice to, you know, let us figure it out. But like maybe it's funny to think about us not knowing to cut off a show after 90 minutes and <laughs> keep on trying really dumb bits at, to see if we could get laughs while the audience was just exhausted. <laughs> the audience was... was
0: ready to get out of there.
1: And they were mostly our friends, so it makes it even worse. Yeah. <laughs> But it helped us figure it out, so I don't know. There's probably other stuff, but that's what comes to mind. I just remember we think Dan dressed up as a kookaburra bird, and uh, yes, us doing that, and for we thought it was gonna go great, and then it not doing well. But yeah, that that there's some nice that we learned from there.
0: <laughs> well, Joe, thank you so much for talking with me I, I, I've gotten so much pleasure out of your work and your comedy um, and it was it was great to, to get to talk to you and I think all those people who think uh, you couldn't possibly be this sincere I, I now know they are they are certainly wrong
1: <laughs> well thanks it was very nice talking with to you too you gotta to hear this song.
0: Well, as I said, you can judge for yourself, but if Joe Pera is playing a character, he just might be the greatest actor of all time. You can watch his stand-up special, Slow and Steady, for free on YouTube, and get tickets for the Paras Tour, which kicks off in Madison, Wisconsin, on January 25th at JoePara.com. And for now, at least, Joe Para Talks With You is available to stream on Max. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple and Spotify. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on threads at Matt Wilstein and at thedailybeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram and threads, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by ACAST for The Daily Beast with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude. You can find on Instagram at Claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week.